0: Hello, and welcome to the Jewish Heretics Podcast. This is the official podcast of the United Jewish People's Order and the morris Vinchevsky Center. We are a secular, progressive Canadian Jewish organization that has been around since the 1920s. We are a multifaceted cultural and activist community with a summer camp. It's called Camp Neivelt. We have a shulah or school, for children and adults an extensive Yiddish archive and other things, and branches in different Canadian cities. My name is David Wall, and I am the United Jewish People's Order Cultural Programmer. That's a mouthful. And I will be your host today. This is actually our first ever episode. I guess it's called The Pilot, The Pilot Episode. And our first ever interviewee, our first ever guinea pig, is the great Max Wallace. And now I will attempt to summarize the entirety of Max Wallace's life and career in one paragraph, and I will fail dismally, but here goes. Max Wallace is an activist, author, historian, filmmaker, broadcaster, and music festival director, among other things. His nonfiction books have garnered numerous nominations and awards and appearances on prominent bestseller lists, including that of the New York Times. His books are wonderfully diverse in content, with subjects ranging from Nazi-sympathizing aviator Charles Lindbergh to rock star Kurt Cobain. And if we were to just read some of the titles of his books, we will see just how diverse his subject matter is. For example, he wrote The American Axis, Henry Ford, Charles Lindbergh, and The Rise of the Third Reich. He wrote... In the Name of Humanity, The Secret Deal to End the Holocaust. This book, by the way, was a finalist for the prestigious R.B.C. Taylor Prize for Nonfiction in 2018. Max wrote Love and Death, The Murder of Kurt Cobain. And he wrote Muhammad Ali's Greatest Fight, Cassius Clay vs. the United States of America. This book, written in 2000, was adapted into a movie and directed by the great Stephen Frears the man who brought us Dangerous Liaisons and other films, and it starred Danny Glover and Christopher Plummer. His latest book, called After the Miracle, focuses on the under-celebrated left-wing radicalism of Helen Keller, and hopefully we'll be discussing this book today at some length. I'm not done yet. Over the years, Max managed to co-found and direct the Ottawa Folk Festival he worked as station manager at the community radio station CKCU-FM. He worked for Steven Spielberg's Shoah Project. He made a wonderful film called Schmelvis about Elvis Presley's Jewish roots. And he's made a difference as a disability advocate by, among other things, writing video descriptions of content for a television network dedicated to the visually impaired. Oh wait, there's one significant thing I didn't include And that is his connection to the Morris and Chesky United Jewish People's Order community. He's a Nivelt cottage owner and serves on at least one board of directors in the organization. But we'll get to all of that later. Phew, I'm done. Uh, Welcome, Max Wallace. How are you today?
1: Uh, I'm feeling old with that (laughs) description.
0: Well, it's the kind of description that it could be like your obituary. He died. Exactly. but you have done some incredible stuff. Uh, did I get anything egregiously wrong? I'm not an ace researcher like you.
1: Oh, uh, you know, it's 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 all a blur basically. But <laughs> sounds right.
0: I could have made up stuff, I guess. Um. So we'll just we'll just dive right in. As you heard in the intro, this is our first ever podcast episode, and I think the the point of this podcast, at least for now until it changes, is kind of looking at different ways of expressing secularist and or uh, progressive Jewishness. So, I would like to ask about your Jewish identity. Did Did you, for example, grow up in a in an observant context?
1: I definitely did not. In fact, my uh, my grandfather uh, was the first uh, vice president of uh, of the United Jewish People's Order Canada and the uh, president of Ajpo Montreal. And that's at a time that's that's something you didn't mention in your introduction. But figures very prominently in in my Jewish upbringing, but also in the in the uh, the book about Helen Keller. Um, AJPO was for many years a communist front organization, and and was quite notorious in in the Toronto and Canadian Jewish communities for its affiliation with the Communist Party. It it's long since uh, abandoned that uh, that affiliation, but. In, in some people's uh in some people's minds we're still you know a bunch of commies and and i was brought up very secular needless to say my my parents weren't communists um but my my mother was a red diaper baby and i i guess i was you know militantly secular growing up but i did have a strong sense of my jewish identity and and this idea that uh, Judaism and social justice are inextricably linked. Um, so, and that, and that's what really appealed to me about Ujpo when I moved to Toronto. The the Ujpo uh, chapters in Montreal and and other cities have long since uh, uh, disbanded, and Toronto and Winnipeg are really the only the only chapters left. But um, I you know I grew up hearing about Ujpo. My mother. My mother was a red diaper baby. She went to the Moroswinchevsky School in Montreal, which was uh Ajpo Montreal, was padlocked by Duplessis by the fascist premier of Quebec wow. when she was a child. And uh the Morosvonchevsky Shola ended up in her parents' living room. Um, not because it was closed down, but because so many parents pulled their their kids out uh because of that taint of communism. So, you know, I'd heard heard about all this, but um. When I, when I moved to Toronto about almost 20 years ago, I, I, I found my community.
0: I recently attended the Limud Festival, which is this kind of international Jewish education convention kind of, and there there was right. one in Toronto. And I actually attended uh, representing UJPO, representing the United Jewish People's Order. And I had a discussion with one of the uh, organizers of the event, and he had a kippa on. He was clearly an observant Jewish man. And he just basically came out and asked me, I, I mean, he was being facetious a little bit, could I, but I could tell there was a kernel of truth in it. He said, what's the point of being, calling yourself Jewish if you're not, if you're not religious? What's the point of it? What, why not just be uh, left-wing? Why does it, what, what, what's the Jewish part? In other words, he was asking, what is, the, what is the essence of secular Judaism, secular Jewishness? Why bother? How would it, I sort of had my answer, but how would you answer that question?
1: Well, ironically, for my last book, which you mentioned, in the name of humanity, it uh, it was uh, focused on uh, an ultra orthodox woman named Russia Sternbach, who was a hero of the Holocaust. And so, when I started doing my research, I ended up in uh, a lot in Brooklyn with this huge uh, Haredi ultra orthodox community. And I've, I I grew up, you know, I'd say a lot of a lot of Secular Jews in my family were borderline anti-Semitic. They would talk about these you know, black-hatted Orthodox Jews with almost repugnance. You know, they they would, you know, they were embarrassed. And and I, I sort of understand my mother grew up in Montreal, which is still quite anti-Semitic, but when she when she was young, it was much worse. Um, Quebec being sort of the epicenter of anti-Semitism in North America. Um, now it's more Islamophobic than which which is a relief to the Jewish community, but uh, there's still a lot of intolerance there. And, um, and then I, you know, I, I, didn't know what to expect. I grew up with these myths about the Haredi and the Hasidic Jews. And then I, I, you know, immersed myself for a couple of years in, in that community. Um, and I also wondered, would they accept me? Do they even consider me Jewish? And, you know, they'd always say the same thing. They'd almost, they'd use the same phrase over and over. Ah, oh, Yid's a Yid, what do we care? And so I have encountered that, this idea, especially from modern orthodoxies, these people in Toronto who wear, wear the kippah, um, and, and, you know, have a great deal of contempt for uh, secular Jews. And I think there's a it's more of a recent phenomenon, too, in the uh, modern Orthodox community uh, that secular Jews are associated with left wing Jews. Left wing Jews are a bunch of Israel haters and anti Zionists. And so to them, what they're really saying is that, you know, you're not you're not Jewish because you don't embrace uh, Zionism the way we do.
0: Yeah that's very interesting. Um, it, it, and it's also uh, maybe we'll touch on this a little later because Helen Keller has really had a relationship with Israel. Um but all roads seem to, le- to lead there. All 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 our conversations as Jewish people seem, seem to lead somehow to Israel and Zionism and that whole black that that whole kind of kind of wormhole as it were. Right. Um, and
1: and as I discovered and as we could talk about it with Helen Keller the same was true you know, 70, 80 years ago, but a very different, uh, um, towards Israel on the left, especially.
0: That's right. So I want to, um, let, let's just dive into talking about your, uh, your books. Um, and I'm going to do that annoying thing where I'm going to like try to encapsulate your entire output with a, with an annoy or a sort of a trite metaphor. But I think I look at your books and, and there's like two rivers. It's like it's split in two. Your oeuvre is split in two kind of so there's the historian Holocaust research aspect of your stuff and then there's a sort of pop culture aspect and there's some places where they meet for example the book about Charles Lindbergh he was a pop culture phenomenon but he was also you know uh, a horrible anti-semite and and, and uh, American fascist um, and so the question I have is about passion um, there's a cliche which is okay maybe Max is, writing the stuff about Kirk Cobain in order to make a lot of money so he can have time to do the stuff he really wants to do, which is all his research into Jewish history and anti-Semitic history and the Holocaust and all the serious stuff. Are you equally passionate about these different strains? How did you end up with this kind of dichotomy? Well, the Kirk Cobain
1: stuff, I, I used to be a music journalist and I, I was a um, station manager of uh, Canada's largest alternative radio station. So that, that, wasn't so weird back then that i was you know doing books about these conspiracy theories around the death of kurt cobain um uh, but now you know that i have an entire oeuvre as you as you call it <laughs> i've realized that there's a there's a common theme to a lot of my books and a lot of my uh subjects the 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 idea of these icons so i've i've written a lot about a lot about icons: uh, Kurt Cobain, Muhammad Ali, Charles Lindbergh, Henry Ford, now Helen Keller, and and I've always been. Fa- I never write about, you know, what they're famous for. It's really what they did with their fame, either for, mm-hmm. either for, the negative with Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford, both uh, Nazi sympathizers, or somebody like Muhammad Ali. I I, I had no interest in his boxing uh, career but my book was about his stand against the Vietnam War and how influential he was um at the time and how much he risked and he used his fame he used his iconic status to to make a political stand and and so you know and this continues with with Helen Keller we could talk about it but that that's another um I'm not, I'm not really writing in my book about her her what she's famous for being a, you know, a famous deaf-blind person. Mm-hmm. It's really what she did with that fame that that struck me and and that uh, that I really focus on in this book.
0: So the latest book called After the Miracle um, is about the lesser known later life of Helen Keller. So you talk about your fascination with icons. Why Helen Keller? What led you to her? Uh, and I, I understand it, it it coincides with your work advocating for the disabled. Here's an interesting question. Does it connect at all to your Jewishness?
1: Absolutely. The, ironically, and, and this is almost a, a coincidence or an accident, I, I first come across Helen Keller when I'm researching Henry Ford, Henry Ford's uh, Nazi sympathies. And in the 20s, Henry Ford buys a weekly newspaper, The Dearborn Independent, and launches the most sustained hate campaign in American history, uh, sort of a precursor to a lot of what's going on today, he spends seven years in this newspaper blaming Jews for all the evils of American society. And you know, I, I'm in the archives in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, uh, going back in in real time, researching you know how people reacted at the time to to this uh, this anti-Semitic hate crusade. And I come across Helen Keller. Helen Keller is one of the first prominent Americans to speak out very loudly um, against this this, uh, anti-Semitic crusade. She wasn't Jewish. I'm like, what? All I knew about Helen Keller was what everybody else knows about Helen Keller. You know, I read the story of my life in grade school, and, you know, most, most of what I knew focused on Helen as a six-year-old girl at the water pump and her miraculous teacher. And so that was interesting. And then years later, I'm researching the book burnings, the, the very famous book burnings that sort of signal the, the beginning uh, of Hitler's uh right after Hitler came to power. Uh German students burn books, un-German books, mostly, you know, Jews and intellectuals and uh, Un-German, decadent figures that were uh, enemies, enemies of the new Reich, of the new order, and I come across Helen Keller's book being one of the first burned, and she's one of the few Americans that are chosen uh, by the Nazis for eradication, and, and that was interesting, um, and that—that's I think when I I. Did a little deeper dive into Helen Keller. You know, what how is how is this beloved icon um, uh, arousing the ire of the world's most ruthless dictator? And mm-hmm. I realized it's her socialism, right? Did I know she was a socialist? No. Uh, and and so that fascinated me. That's that that really started me on on the path. But but again, these are two you know areas where I'm I'm f- focusing on Jewish themed uh, topics. And I come across Helen Keller, this, you know, Christian Gentile uh, figure that's not associated with that stuff in any way. Wow, and, amazing. and so here I am. yeah.
0: Uh, one interesting aspect of the Keller story uh, that you really do go into in the book in a, in a great way is the, the way in which her persona has been edited to ha- to hide her radicalism. Uh, it reminded me of the, of the way that Martin Luther King's persona has been co-opted across the board by left and right to become this kind of benign figure of quote peace unquote but as opposed to his actual kind of anti-poverty anti-capitalist work especially later in his life can you talk to this erasure in relation to Helen Keller um, and it seems it's complicated because you talk in the book about how she went she did some self-censoring at certain points, in order to not sabotage her work for the blind,
1: she was a, yeah she was an accomplice in this in this erasure right. But she was surrounded by these figures, um, her literary consultants, and her employer, the American Foundation for the Blind, who, who every time she tried to take a stand, a political stand, a controversial or a radical stand, they would exert immense pressure, almost emotional blackmail on her to downplay this because she has a responsibility to the blind the blind community and the deaf community and this type of uh it, it, her radical uh beliefs are going to jeopardize that and you know she she succumbed to that on, on many an occasion but then you know it would be like whack a mole um she she come right back especially even during the cold war in the 50s She's denouncing Joseph, Joe McCarthy, and throughout her life, there's there's this idea, and that she joins the Socialist Party in around uh, 1909, 1910, and she's a very active, very radical socialist for about uh, 12 years, and then she gets a job with the American Foundation for the Blind. And that's the end of her. She's no longer talking about uh, revolution. She's not no longer talking about the perils of capitalism. And so there's this this idea. There have been documentaries and other biographies that talk about her early socialism, but there's this uh, this idea that she um, once she went to work for the AFB, she became apolitical. Her politics had mellowed. She no longer. Uh, was, you know, a radical socialist and had these left-wing beliefs. That's simply not true. That's the part that's mostly been erased. I mean, most people don't even know she was a socialist. But those that do, um, there's this, this myth. Um, and, and, and the myth's been perpetuated by people who should know better, you know, documentary filmmakers and biographers who probably believe that if they, it, you know, it's okay, it's sort of quaint that she was once a socialist. But later on she embraces the Soviet Union after the Russian Revolution and for about 30, 35 years, she's a very um, strong supporter of Soviet-style communism and and that's the part that's really been erased that that's what most troubled me um not the idea that uh, she, you know her early socialism has been erased but these these people that have talked about her most famous biographer Joseph lash wrote a biography the first definitive biography in 1980 and he talks about how she was duped by the Communists because you can't ignore some of you know she, she her her book is burned by the Nazis in in uh, 19, in May 1933 just after the Nazis take power most people have no idea what's happening in Germany and haven't even heard of Hitler but she spends the rest of the decade as a fierce anti-fascist and anti-Nazi uh, activist. She right right after her book is burned, she writes a letter to Hitler, uh, warning him that you you know you can you can burn my book, but you can't erase my beliefs. And she says in May 1933, she she writes, "Do not think that your barbarities towards the Jews are unknown here." This is before the Nuremberg laws. This is before the Holocaust. She, it's, it's a few months after Hitler takes power and she's already already talking about her, his barbarity, so the Jews because she spoke fluent German, she spoke six languages. And so she was reading German periodicals and following in real time the rise of Hitler and the kind of things that that he was saying and and, and planning to do. But most of this stuff hadn't most German Jews had no idea what was coming. And yet wow. here's Helen Keller, you know, in May 1933, warning Hitler. And then uh, for the rest of the decade, the two other books. One of her books gets censored because she's praising Lenin. She writes a, a second autobiography um, called Midstream, and she's talking about the seed that Lenin has uh, sowed for all mankind. So that's censored in Germany um she's very popular in germany in fact during during world war one she devoted all her german royalties to the german soldiers blind at the front her friends even some of her socialist comrades thought that she she favored uh germany over the western allies um so so her book gets censored and then in 1938 she publishes her journal and in the journal which it started a couple of years earlier she's uh it really shows the depth of her knowledge about the political currents in Europe and the rise of fascism. She's consistently talking about, you know, she's prophesizing uh, events years in the future. She's predicting that uh, Hitler is going to ally with uh, Mussolini and with Japan to uh, to subjugate the Soviet Union. Uh, she talks about uh, meetings between Hitler and Franco and uh, uh, describes it as a conspiracy, alarmingly imminent. So she's predicting. She she becomes a very fierce anti-fascist uh, and supporter of the loyalist forces in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. And she I starts do. to travel with the with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade to raise money for the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. The Abraham Lincoln Brigade was was founded by the Communist International. It was a communist organization. Um, but also, you know, very anti-fascist, and so I I, for, I I started to to think that she was the original Antifa before Antifa <laughs> was a pejorative word on the right, right? She was she spent the '30s just warning people about fascism and about Nazism, and she's writing letters to her friends at the New York Times, uh, criticizing the New York Times for failing to pay attention. To to Hitler's crimes, and and you know, New York Times was was uh, owned by Jews, and so even Jewish media were sort of downplaying what was happening in Germany. And she was reading these German periodicals and following it very closely, and was desperate to to get people to pay attention. She starts to um, in one of her one of her journal entries she talks about how she had uh, been placed on a nazi blacklist the list of figures to be sent to a concentration camp mm-hmm. uh, uh, so so they were paying attention as well uh to this famous figure you know she wasn't a, she she wasn't known to be a communist she was this, still this beloved figure that had potentially a lot of influence uh, among mainstream uh america and the rest of the world so it, it seems that they they considered her a threat, which was interesting, right? It was fascinating to me. I mean, I, I've become a Holocaust historian, and here's this uh, figure I had no idea any of this stuff, and you know these little hints as I'm researching.
0: So yeah, I mean, she's a full-on yeah. radical, and this but, but then then, correct me if I'm wrong, but she's sort of changes a bit once there's a non aggression pact between the soviet union and and germany she kind of for a, a while at least toes quote toes the the party line unquote and becomes a little bit less vociferous and a little bit less anti nazi because that's that's what the soviet union has demanded of its of its uh, party followers isn't that true which is
1: the dirty little secret of the of the left of my own family of my own communist uh, grandparents and even a Vajpo, right? Like, you know, this is a a Jewish organization that was once a communist front. And unfortunately, the majority of Jewish communists in 1939, after the non-aggression pact, they were ordered to stop criticizing Hitler. And because now Stalin and and Hitler were were allies. And so, you know, they just spent years warning of the dangers of fascism the typhus of fascism, and suddenly their order to stop criticizing Hitler. And, you know, this is a little bit troubling. I, I actually interviewed, um, there's a the Grand Dam of, of Ajpo, of the you know, Jewish People's Order. It was a woman named Razu Ziskin um, who, who had been president of uh, Winnipeg in Winnipeg. She was a, a f- very formidable, amazing figure. She just died a few months ago. But before she died, I had the opportunity to sit down with her, and I asked her that. She she was about 95 when she died, and so she remembered this. I never had the opportunity to ask my grandmother about this uh, period, but I asked her whether she remembers the non-aggression pact. And it turns out that her she had communist relatives, and she was old enough at the time. She was about eight or nine years old, and she'd been raised as a red diaper baby. And... You know, she looks on bemused as her, her communist relatives uh, are, are forced to stop criticizing Hitler. And she asks them about it. And they tell her that Stalin needs time to arm himself for the inevitable war. So these are, you know, people rationalizing at the time. You know, we, we now know that, that Stalin was an ignorant buffoon. He he actually trusted Hitler much like a lot of uh, Western allies uh, uh, when they appeased him, and and yet you know they they rationalized it and and it's a cautionary tale that that's the real lesson you know this this idea that if uh, if if you don't if you forget history you're condemned to repeat it um, we're seeing this now with Putin and the and Ukraine there's a lot of people on the far left. Including many uh, communists, uh, you know, you could you could fit a meeting of the Communist Party in a phone booth these days. But <laughs> but when you when you read their literature, they're defending the invasion and talking about how how Russia was provoked by by NATO, yeah. right? You know, you know, we none of us like NATO, of course, right? We 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 certainly know uh, NATO's history and what NATO's capable of, but this is preposterous.
0: <laughs>
1: this yeah. idea, right? But like so. And then, you know, the, the invasion of Ukraine came as I was researching this book. So I'm seeing all these parallels.
0: Do you have a definitive opinion about her dedication to Soviet Russia and how it changed over time? Is like, do, do you get a sense of where she ended up? Or was some of that, and it's one thing that I found confusing, it wasn't your fault in the book, but it's like, just the sort of history. Was her change of heart, seeming change of heart about Stalin, was that related to her the sort of self-censoring around the uh, around her advocacy for for the blind, or was she really changing? Because at one point she sort of says, "I'm not a communist." Was that true? Right. And or- she actually gives
1: an interview to the New York Times in 1950. A lot of left wingers were were starting to do this around then. She described communism as tyranny in right. in the New York Times, and she had been. There was immense pressure. On her from everybody around her. And the Cold War was in you know full force at, at this time. And so was this disingenuous? It does sound a little bit disingenuous. We know, we know that she was never a fan of Stalin. Um, she considered Lenin the greatest living figure. Even when, when he was alive, she she was on a vaudeville tour, and people would ask her, Who do you consider the greatest man in the world? And she'd always say, Lenin. So, you know, later on, she compares Stalin and Lenin and said Lenin, Stalin doesn't have the same uh, breadth of genius and vision as Lenin. So she was never a fan of Stalin. And yet, even as she was criticizing Stalin and troubled by his purges and by some of the hypocrisy that she was already seeing, she also saw the Soviet Union and communism, Bolshevism, as a very... Uh, important thing. Um, so it, going back to the beginning, to the Bolshevik Revolution 1917, you have Emma, her Her friend Emma Goldman writes a letter. I find this letter from Emma Goldman to Helen Keller now. One's a socialist, one's an anarchist. And Emma Goldman writes, is not Russia the, the the uh the the promised land they, they were thrilled the the entire breadth of the left at this time during the russian revolution the socialists the communists the anarchists there weren't very many communists yet because they were they were still mostly socialists and they see this incredible potential they see you know you, you again you see it in real time like they're all celebrating the Russian Revolution and as As the revolution proceeds, you know, through the 20s and through the 30s, this this actually made an impression on me. You have Helen Keller consistently defending the Soviet Union and, and, you know, even after she's criticizing Stalin and you start doing the math and she's talking about, you know, in letters to friends, uh, look at how much the Soviet Union has accomplished in a short 15 years, and she starts itemizing the incredible uh, progress they've made. And it really is astonishing. I, I never really thought of it that way, right? Like that, you know, this this revolution 15 years earlier, 25 years earlier, in that period of time, they had accomplished so much. And, you know, Jews certainly were celebrating because there was, before Stalin showed himself to be a rabid anti-Semite, uh, there was a lot of progress. You know, the the Jews that had been targeted by pogroms and by vicious anti-Semitism for for their entire lives suddenly were welcomed into into Soviet society. There were Jewish uh, cabinet ministers in Stalin's cabinet, and uh, and so this was a miracle to people. And you know, now we know in in hindsight what a what a brutal uh monster Stalin was and and his crimes but people didn't really know that at the time even even as as Keller is discuss, you know criticizing the purges and the moscow show trials uh she still sees this great hope in the soviet union and ra- almost rationalizes it um yes but russia is uh has its flaws russia is making mistakes but look at what's happening in nazi germany so she's consistently comparing nazi germany and the soviet union it does come out much better understandably um so it's quite fascinating to me just reading this stuff in real time you know the letters and the journal as it's progressing i i i had a better sense of of how my grandparents rationalized it and and what they were looking at. Now, she had been a socialist, and then she, she at one point after the Russian Revolution, she describes herself as a socialist and a Bolshevik, and she starts comparing socialism and communism. A lot of people are still confused about this. What's the difference? She's a member of the Socialist Party, and she starts to criticize the Socialist Party as being too slow especially around the World War I. Uh, The Socialist Party was against the war, but she wanted a general strike. She she goes to Carnegie Hall, that's how Emma Goldman discovers her. Emma Goldman uh, attends a talk that she gives at Carnegie Hall uh, under a new women's party um, calling for a general strike. And the Socialist Party not wanting to alienate the unions, rejects it. The unions all want a war. The American unions know that it will create thousands and thousands and thousands of good-paying jobs. So she becomes disgusted with the Socialist Party. And and then once the Russian Revolution happens, it's very clear. She, She tells a reporter that she's now a socialist and a Bolshevik. And she starts to embrace syndicalism. She joins the IWW. And she starts to describe herself as an IWW. She had followed the uh, Lawrence textile strike. Um, Big Bill Haywood. Big Bill Haywood becomes her her hero, and uh, he's he's the main the main uh, figure behind the uh, industrial workers of the world. And, and so she starts to embrace syndicalism and left wing socialist politics. Um, uh, I I don't know how many people have remember the movie Reds, which is, is yeah. now decades ago. Um it it it's about John Reed. John Reed, the journalist, the socialist journalist who goes to Russia, befriends, or gets to know Trotsky and Lenin. And uh he, he writes Ten Days That Shook the World, the the sort of definitive accounts of the Russian Revolution in the West in, in, in English. And uh, he's a friend of Helen Keller, and he doesn't know how to get back. He doesn't have the money to get back from Russia. She sends him the money. So she's a friend of John Reed at this time, and she's she's very um, influential in his career. And so John Reed returns to the United States and tries to convince the Socialist Party to embrace Bolshevism. And this is where the split happens. Uh, A significant portion of the Socialist Party wants to achieve socialism through the ballot box. And the left-wing faction, they're actually called the left-wing faction, Uh, John Reed is the leader of this left-wing faction, trying to get them to embrace the Bolshevik revolution and Bolshevism and the dictatorship of the proletariat. And so then thousands of socialists get expelled from the Socialist Party, and they end up Uh, founding three new communist parties, which eventually end up becoming one, the Communist Party of the USA. Helen Keller is clearly in the left-wing faction, and she's disgusted with the Socialist Party. She talks about how we need revolution. She's impatient. She doesn't believe in achieving socialism through the ballot box. So, So I'm I'm doing this research and it's quite fascinating and and very confusing. You know, (laughs) uh, when I watch, I remember when I watched Reds, I didn't really understand what was going on with, uh, you know, when he's addressing these large crowds. Now I have a better sense. But I'd always heard that Ajpo, you know, Jewish people's order had been expelled from the socialist, from the Jewish socialist movement, the Ring, the workman's circle. So originally, the Labor League, which was the predecessor of Ajpo, were members of this socialist Jewish group, very Yiddishist. And they end up advocating a a segment of of these uh, Labor League members, especially women that work in the Shmada factories. they start to look at the Russian Revolution and what's happening in uh, the Soviet Union, and they're trying to convince the Arbiter Ring, the socialists, to embrace communism, to embrace Bolshevism, and they get expelled. So I, I'd always heard that the that Uchpo was the left wing of the Arbiter Ring, and I always thought well, left wing aren't aren't all aren't socialists left wing as well. But they were actually pejoratively called the left wing and they were expelled. And that's how Ajpo came to be. That's how it became a communist front. And so when you look at Helen Keller's attitudes around this time, it's fascinating the differences between socialism and communism. Some are subtle, but the the one thing that really struck me and that's very prominently featured in the book was her commitment uh, to eradicating anti-black racism. Yeah, life. She you know she she grew up in Alabama. Her father was the first Klansman in Alabama, so she's raised by a Klansman, a former Klansman, and she starts to become aware of these um, the inequality uh, very early on, and she she sends a a very poignant letter and a donation to the NAACP, the very fledgling NAACP, very very early. In, in the organization's history. She sends a letter talking about her shame of being from the South because of the oppression and the tears of, of African-Americans. Um, and this sends shockwaves through both the South and, and her own conservative family. They're, they're, how, how could she betray her, her heritage that way? And so for the rest of her life, she starts to um, embrace, uh she she really takes on the anti-racist uh, movement, and I, at one point I realized that she actually was a lot more passionate about anti-Black racism and anti-Semitism than she was about civil rights for people with disabilities.
0: Yeah, that comes um, out in the book for sure. It's an interesting yeah.
1: And, and so it turns out that the socialists were refusing to acknowledge that black people were any uh, had it worse than white working class. So working class blacks and working class whites were in it together. Uh, the 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 evil was the oppression of the working man, the working class, not about blacks. Now they were anti-racism. They talked about how terrible racism was, but they refused to acknowledge that. Anti-Black racism was a a bigger scourge. Meanwhile, the Communist Party, and this is where it becomes interesting and I get a better insight into into Ujpo's history, into my own grandparents' uh, uh, embrace of of communism back then. Communist Party was leading the, was was among the vanguard, uh, opposing both anti-Black racism and the United States lynching, anti-lynching laws, and it was a very important focus of their ideology, especially before before the second world war and And so later on, you know, there's Ujpo uh, has this long history uh with Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson was a communist, very famous actor and singer, but he was also a very prominent communist who never who never abandoned communism until his dying day. um and he was one of the leaders of the anti-lynching movement. so, I, I don't know a lot about Ujpo's history during the 30s when it was a communist front, the Labour League was a communist front, but I could see the appeal. I, I You see it in Helen Keller. She's a socialist and she realizes that we have to end anti-black racism. She, she starts to embrace the the communist line about racism rather than the socialist line. And I can imagine that that's what, what drew Paul Robeson to Ujpo and why, you know, he came very often to Ujpo. He sang with the choir, the Toronto Jewish Folk Choir, which was prominently associated with our organization. And um, he, you know, he, they must have been very active. We, we know that Ujpo was very active in, in uh, the, uh, supporting the Loyalist forces during the Spanish Civil War. So they were certainly active against fascism, which makes sense uh, for a Jewish organization. But they were also clearly active in the anti-racist movement, and so you see these parallels. It's interesting. Know.
0: It's almost like it's almost like uh, the, the the communist faction, or what you the, what is referred to as the left faction of the left, was in a way uh, predicting what we now call intersectionality—the idea that people have different experiences based on different kinds of oppression, uh, which which uh, is fascinating to me. Um, and we, I do have a question related to that later. We are running out of time, but let me let me ask you just um, a part of your book that's really fascinating is your exploration of Helen Keller's flaws.
1: So yes, she did have flaws, and I I do talk about it. So like many socialists, she very briefly embraced um, eugenics.
0: Yeah, even calling for, there's a part that's shocking to me where she's, she sort of embraces this idea that they, can you talk about this thing that happened? they like, no, we should let this baby die.
1: Right. So a doctor, it's the Bollinger baby in Chicago, and a doctor who was a very staunch eugenicist use it, let, lets this baby die, a baby that was born with severe birth defects. and And Helen Keller, you would expect her as a disability icon to condemn this, but instead she embraces it. And you know, it turns out that back then the a lot of socialists embraced um, including Keller's friend Margaret Sanger, her very close friend and ally, Margaret Sanger, was a socialist, and she was a staunch eugenicist. Mm. And they would talk about how eugenics is necessary to eradicate overpopulation and poverty. So H- Helen, uh, Helen Keller's two, two greatest um uh, she had this great hatred for poverty. She called poverty an abomination, and for racism and discrimination. So, so eugenics to her would eradicate this misery that she saw. She she traveled. She toured the slums. She she knew the the toll of poverty, especially poverty among uh, racial, blind and deaf racial minorities. She she made a special point to talk about that. Rather than you know, her employer wanted to get, give tax breaks to blind people so that they could get a tax break for buying a braille typewriter. She had no interest in that. She couldn't have cared less. She should write letters saying, "No, nope, th- th- that that will only benefit a small portion of the dis- disabled community. People like you and me who can afford it, but the the overwhelming majority of blind and deaf people are poor and and don't pay taxes. So so she." She quickly rejects that. It, it's it definitely a flaw, but it's very short-lived, either because she she realized the hypocrisy, um, but she never embraced eugenics again. And then later on in the 30s, as I talked about, she very loudly condemns um, the Nazis for, mm-hmm. you know, the, we, we know that the Nazis were inspired by the American and British eugenic movements um so she's you know put this time she places herself on the right side of history as a disability icon and she condemns hitler hitler's uh, euthanasia program so,
0: so, uh, so towards the end of the book you discuss trends and attitudes among advocates for the disabled especially in regards to identity politics ideas of privilege and a desire to it- uh, to even abandon Helen Keller as being too white, too privileged, too antiquated. Yeah, a lot of um, a lot
1: of disability advocates still, you know, focus on that that embrace eugenics and and say, well, Helen Keller is a a white privileged woman. She, there's nothing radical about her. but but because they don't know this story, that that's that's part of it. There's a I, I befriended a very uh, well known uh, deafblind woman, an Ethiopian American named Havan Germa who was the first uh, deaf-blind person to earn a Harvard Law degree. And and she she came out on uh, the 140th anniversary of Helen Keller's death. She uh, did a video for her huge social media following talking about how Helen Keller was a hero. Uh, she would have, if she were alive today, she would embrace Black Lives Matter. She talked about privilege. And so there, there is starting to be a turnaround and I'm hoping my book will will contribute to that. Um, this idea that uh, yes, she had flaws like a lot of people, but she did so much good. And and you talked about intersectionality. She her epiphany was when she discovered that that most disability in America was caused by lack of workplace safety. So she started uh, linking disability to capitalism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and 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 she starts to link disability and race and feminism. She's a suffragist, a, a suffragette. She calls herself. She gives an interview to the New York Times and she says, I'm a militant suffragette for one reason. I believe that suffragism will lead to socialism, and socialism is the ideal cause. Hmm. So she's she's making all these connections. Today we call it intersectionality. Uh, but in the beginning of the, you know, when when disability studies programs started to be a thing in the 60s and 70s, they weren't talking about that. It's only recently that that, that became part of the curriculum of disability studies programs. And yet. A lot of prominent academics condemned Helen Keller because she, for two or three weeks, she embraced eugenics. <laughs> Meanwhile, she she was an intersectionalist long before it was a word.
0: Absolutely amazing that her, she's incredibly prophetic and ahead of her time. That's a sense I get over and over reading your, your your fascinating book. It's 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 really remarkable, and I would recommend everyone pick up a copy of After the Miracle by Max Wallace because the book After the Miracle is about Helen Keller but also about, it's kind of like a primer on the history of American radicalism, the history of the left in a particular time, and it's just, it's fascinating. So Israel was quite a, almost a a Soviet-oriented entity when it began, and Helen Keller was interested in it, seems seems to have been interested in it for that reason.
1: Right, Most most socialists embrace Zionism. Um, in the twenties and thirties, and of course, the first the first labor government or map pie, uh government were, were a bunch of uh, socialists, mm-hmm. uh, David Ben Gurion, those people, and of course, like like a lot of socialists, there was a lot of hypocrisy in it. But at that time, there was this mythology, um, and and you know, there's a letter that sh- that she she sends to one of her comrades uh, about how after her after she visited Israel in 1952. Um, she talks about uh, about uh, her her visit, and she had also visited South Africa a year earlier, where she was disgusted by three years after apartheid, she was disgusted by the racial segregation, and she had to you know give separate talks to black groups and white groups and colored groups and Indian groups, and she's talking about this to her comrade, and he says, "Oh, what a what a." Uh, Contrast to Israel, where there's no discrimination (laughs) of any kind, right? And you're reading that, that, that's what they believe. They genuinely believe that Israel become this manifestation of of socialism and even communism. And of course, Stalin endorsed uh, the the creation of the state of Israel uh, early on uh, in 1948. And later, it's only later that Israel becomes a pariah among the left. Mm-hmm. But but here she is in the 30s talking about Palestine and and and, and there's actually a tinge of bigotry um, in, in her her talks, because she's talking about the Arabs have really not achieved what the Jews have achieved. She's basically saying the Jews are much more civilized than the Arabs. So I think this was very uh, this was part of that socialist uh, line back then that that we need to create a state of Israel um, as a, as a socialist paradise. And we need to, you know, put the Arabs back in their place because they're they're the obstacle. Um so you know, another one of her flaws for sure, especially when she's, you know, so vocal about anti-black racism and her disgust for anti-black racism and anti-Semitism. And here you you see her, um, with a little bigoted diatribe about, uh, about the Arabs. She changes, once she, once she visits Israel and once she visits the middle East or, or a, a, a slew of Arab countries, she starts to change her, her attitude. She, she visits Syria and she's impressed by how more women than men attend university. So that's also short-lived.
0: Certainly when I read your book, and I have a feeling a lot of people reading this book are going to fall in love with Helen Keller. I don't know if that was your intent, but that's what happens. I fall in love with Helen Keller. And, just, and, and anyone you fall in love with, you, you recognize that they have flaws. But one of the things that Helen Keller manages is to be mutable. She changes. She learns. She, she, her, her, her political positions, she's not stuck in. She's not stubborn. She's able to evolve her politics, uh, and so I like to think maybe she would have grown up, as it were, to uh, maybe have a, a more nuanced look at Israel as a, you know, as a. As an- oh,
1: I, I know for sure that that's true. If, she, like, like Gurma said, if she was alive today, she would be supporting Black Lives Matter, but she would also be a very fierce critic of the Israeli government and and the crimes of the israeli government towards the mm. palestinian people there's no question in my mind i also fell in love with her that that's probably why you did because that's how i wrote the book even though you know i i definitely document a lot of her flaws but i absolutely i have absolutely no doubt just like i i know that she would be a very vocal uh, opponent of donald trump and trumpism and w- w- what's going on in the united states uh, she she actually described one of her critics. Uh, a columnist named Westbrook Pegler outed her as a communist sympathizer in 1947, and she described him as a dung beetle, which <laughs> has become my favorite epithet. And and, and so I could just picture uh, Helen Keller describing Donald Trump as a dung beetle.
0: All right. Well, that, that's a perfect place to stop. Let's leave it there. Donald Trump is a dung beetle. Um, thank you so much, Max, for giving up so much of your time to talk to me. And um, and I, I'll see you uh, uh, soon and talk to you soon in our as we, we put on our hats as members of the ujpo Winchewski community. Thanks for uh, having
1: me. It was an auspicious uh, honor to, to be the, the, the inaugural guinea pig for your podcast. Good luck with the podcast.
0: Thank you so much. Stay well. You too. Well, we've come to the end of our show. We'd like to thank you for listening. And we'd like to thank everyone who made our podcast possible including United Jewish People's Order Executive Director Serena Sarin and our guest, Max Wallace. This podcast was recorded at Walt Whitman Studios in Toronto. The theme music was composed by Serena Sarin with help from me. My name is David Wall. Until next time, Zeitgesund.